The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study. We just got back in 2 Thessalonians last week, and we're going to continue here this morning. We're in chapter 3. And we're actually looking at verses 6 through 15. Now last week we never touched these verses. We just kind of did an overview, uh, kind of dealt with the subject of work. And so this is an interesting section here, particularly because it's in this book and because Paul takes so much time to talk about it. I mean, he writes to address these problems within this congregation. There's a problem. People are not working. How many? Why? We don't know, okay? But this is the third time in our text today, that he's addressing this problem with them. And so he comes across pretty strong in this text. And I guess you'll see that as we go through it. But Paul deals in this little epistle, three chapters, with some great theological subjects. And then as he gets to the end of the epistle, he just basically closes the letter by saying, get a job. Sounds like your mom, huh? Get a job, he says. You know, stop freeloading. Stop whatever reason you're not working. That's what you need to do. And so the majority of this closing chapter deals with work and the need to do it. Which tells me this must be an important subject if Paul spends this much time in this little epistle on it. Now after last week's study, hopefully you see that our vocation, our work, our job is very important to God. You know, sometimes we just get this idea, well, my job is separate, my church life is over here. It's not supposed to be that way. It's a secular, it's a sacred duty, your job, whatever it be. Now, we looked at last week that God had created a world that included the need for work, work to be done. He created man with a mission. He didn't create us to just sit around and do nothing. God commanded us to work. In Exodus 20, verse 9, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's a command, people. Most people in these verses focus on the Sabbath, but he's saying, yeah, you've got to take the Sabbath off, but listen, six days I want you to work. That is God's design for man. Look at what Paul told the Colossians. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, don't take this as slave and master. That's what he's addressing here, but it fits to employers and employees. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but sincere, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, here's the sum of it, people. No matter what your job is, is the Lord whom you be, should be serving at that job. Your job is not a secular job. I think we think of that as secular and sacred. It's a spiritual duty, according to Scriptures, because you're supposed to be serving the Lord with your attitude, with your diligence at that job, whatever you do, whatever job it is, you're to do it for His honor and for His glory. You think it'd make a difference in the workforce if be Christians went at their jobs that way? Paul's saying it's a sacred duty, not a secular one. You're doing it for the Lord. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're a mommy and you're washing clothes, you're scrubbing floors, you're taking care of the children, whatever it is, or you're running a Fortune 500 company, you're to do it as unto the Lord, serving Him. And the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, the Lord has given us the power to get wealth. You know how He gave us that power? Through work. 
He gives us employment. He gives us jobs to work to get the money we need to live. All right. Now, this is important teaching, I think, especially now because we live in a culture that has a kind of a very skewed view of work. They really do. I got this meme off the Internet last week. A Christian posted this. Man returns to work after vacation with fresh, re-energized hatred for job. That's sad, but that's true. You know, that's how, and this is Christian. The Christians feel this way. Oh, I've got to go back to work again. You're looking at your work wrong. That's the problem. We act like work is cramping our style. All right? We seem to see work as mercenary and simply a way to pay off our debts or fund our lifestyle. But for Christians, it really should be different. We need to see work as a sacred duty that brings glory to God. Can you imagine if we had that view when we went to work? Commenting on our text in 2 Thessalonians, G.K. Beale writes this, Christians in various sectors of the workplace too often undervalue the work they do, failing to see it as vitally related to their relationship with Christ and the advancement of His kingdom. I don't think Christians see their work that way. Paul elaborates in these verses that the performance of work to the best of one's ability, is a vital part of living out one's faith. Where is it that we come in contact with unsaved people most? It's at work. I mean, some of us don't see any people other than that. You know, we go home, we stay at our home, we see our relatives, we see our family. Other than that, we don't even interact with people. But at your job, you do. And they get a chance to really check you out and see what you're made of. And so it's a great time to you know, honor God through that. Basically, Paul's trying to teach us that you're in full-time ministry, okay? Whatever you do, you're in full-time ministry. What you do is no different than what I do. I'm preaching the Word of God. That's true, I'm supposed to do it for the glory of God, but just as important, like I said, there is no secular work. It's all for God's glory. Paul put it this way in Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for man. And St. Francis said this, the most powerful, effective evangelism takes place on the job as you live out your Christianity in the face of unbelievers. That's what we just talked about. And I agree with that because that's where people see you on the workforce. Are you working? Are you laboring for the glory of God? Or are you trying to you know, skate out as much as possible and do the littlest work as you can while you're there? Now, there's a problem in this church about people and not working. He doesn't tell us why. You know, we're only hearing one side of the story, kind of, and so all we can do is speculate. And people are good at that, you know, speculating. So we get all kinds of people saying all kinds of things, and I've read some very interesting stuff. Some think it was the cultural influence that the Jews had. Well, for the most part, the Jews had a pretty solid work ethic, so I don't know that that's the issue. Others say it's the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles said that free men don't work. And so that you know it was beyond them. That's slave stuff. We don't do manual labor. We, you know, so it could have been that influence. But here's the thing: most scholars, at least most scholars that I have read, let me qualify that, okay? Because <laughs> there are probably a lot I haven't read. I don't read liberal scholars though, so I can't help you there. But most scholars draw a connection between these non-working brothers and Paul's teaching about the coming of the Lord, which I think is kind of interesting. They think they became so caught up in the idea that the Lord's returning soon that they, we got to quit our jobs. And, and they give them credit, I think, because they say, well, they, they wanted to get out and evangelize. Oh, that makes it sound positive, right? I'm quitting my job because I'm going to go do work for the Lord. You know? Now, who's going to pay me? I don't know, but I'm going to go do this work for the Lord. All right? 
Yeshua's coming. We can't be wet, messing around doing you know, secular stuff. We've got to get out and win people for Christ. Now, before we jump into our text this morning, I want to see that what Paul teaches here, he'd already taught them on two other occasions. And I think this is really important to understanding this. Look at me, for example, at 1 Thessalonians 4. <coughs> Man, I've got a tickle in my throat. I can't get rid of it. <coughs> There's a lot of questions regarding these two verses and what exactly they're saying. All right, People go back and forth on it. Most commentators, though, have advocated a reading that states that the Thessalonians had abandoned work as part of their eschatological expectation. Why work if Yeshua is coming? Again, so that's what they think. So Paul said here in verse 11 that they are to aspire to live quietly. Now, this is an interesting statement because the word aspire is... Philato medomai. I got coffee, Mike. Thank you. Uh, no, water's not good. I don't like water. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I have hot coffee, so that kind of <clears throat> calms that tickle in my throat. Philato medomai is the word here, uh, aspire. And it means to be zealous, to strive eagerly. They were to strive eagerly to be quiet. <laughs> the word quiet here. Hesuhadzo, and this word is used in the New Testament of a number of things, such as keeping your mouth shut, not saying anything, or to become quiet after speaking. But it's used oftentimes of resting. But it has the idea in all these usages of tranquility and peace. You know, just be quiet and keep the peace is the idea. So I guess we could say that Paul means a life of peacefulness, not turbulence, a related word uh, used to describe the wife with a quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3.4. Use that same idea, meek and quiet spirit. It's a life that doesn't does its best to avoid unnecessary contention and to be at peace with all men as far as possible. And I think the issue here is these people that aren't working are causing problems because they're not working because somebody's got to take care of them. And so it's just causing a lot of contention. Now... <clears throat> People say, well, this is connected with their view of eschatology, so maybe they're saying they got to quit pushing eschatology or something. I, you know, I'm not, I don't really think the, the connection here is eschatology. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, mind your own affairs. Uh, this can be basically just translated, mind your own business. You know, And we don't really know uh, what he was speaking to because we don't know the issues. But he seems to be exhorting them not to be busybodies. He said, and to work with your own hands. So again, he's encouraging them to work, get busy, go, quit being a busybody and get out there and do some work. G.K. Beale commenting on this says, most agree that the problem is Christians not working to support themselves because of a mistaken belief that Christ would return within the within near future. Now you've got to realize they're talking 20 years here from the parousia when this was written. That doesn't sound like a real short time to me, you know. 20 years. The fact that the warning against slackness in working occurs both directly before and after 5.14, Paul's explicit teaching about Christ's final coming, supports this conclusion. So again, that he, Beale just backs up what I'm saying. The most people are saying this has to do with their view of eschatology. So to work with your hands was something that slaves and artisans did, but those of high social rank and wealth wouldn't be involved in labor. According to the Greeks, they just they look down on that, they frown on it, they don't want to be part of it. 
He says, walk here. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So he's talking about their conduct here. Walk is peripateo, refers to conduct in various areas of life. So he is exhorting them to be loving, not busybodies, and to work hard as a testimony to their faith towards the outsiders. They're to walk, live properly, to live in a way that brings glory to Christ. Now, what he's talking about here is work. Okay, we know that. And he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, that's a key here we've got to pick up. I want you to work because I don't want you being dependent on somebody. I don't want somebody having to take care of you. So basically saying, work, don't be a meddler, don't be a busybody, don't be sticking your nose in other people's business, attend to your own business, and do your own work so you're not dependent on other people. Now notice what he says at the end of verse 11. Work with your own hands as we instructed you. Now, remember, this is the first letter he wrote them, right? But he says, work with your hands as we instruct. When did he instruct them? Wasn't in this letter. He already, he's telling them, we instructed you to do this before. When was that? Well, it must have been when he was with them, right? And when was he there? Well, you remember he went there and founded a church. So when he gets there, there's no Christians there. He goes in the synagogue, he starts preaching, he establishes a church. Paul is only there for maybe three weeks, a lot of people think, okay? That's a short stay, all right? So that's what makes me wonder, how is the issue eschatology? Or he comes into town, let's say it gets him a week to get some people gathered, all right? So now he's got a couple more weeks to teach them. Let's say the first thing he teaches them is eschatology. All right, so he teaches them eschatology, so then someone says, oh, I quit my job right now until... I mean, he's only got a couple more weeks there, but it seems like this is a developed thing even when he's there. He says, we instructed you, you got to work with your hands. So that would have to transpire really rapidly if that is the issue here, which makes me think it may be one of the issues, but I, I really doubt that's the issue they're wrestling with. They apparently didn't obey what he told them, okay? So a few weeks later when he writes this letter, he's writing back to them and saying again, listen, this is what we commanded you. You guys need to get busy. You need to be doing this. Now, as you come to 2 Thessalonians, he has to repeat this a third time to them. And that's the background for our text. And he says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, that you keep away from every brother that is walking in idleness and not according to tradition that you received from us. <coughs> the we here is the, what's called the polite plural. He's including Silas and Timothy, but this is really from Paul. All right, He's recognizing his inspiration. He's recognizing his authority in Christ. And he says, then we command you. In case you people don't get this yet, this is the third time I'm telling you. So um, we are commanding you. Command here is a present active indicative. It's not a suggestion. He's telling them, this is what we command you, brothers. He says, in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. This is a Hebrew idiom. Name is a Hebrew idiom referring to the person's character. Now Paul is saying, I'm standing on Christ's authority in the name of the Lord, being consistent with His person and His will. We are commanding you, brothers, to do this. Keep away from any brother that is walking in idleness. All right, so now this is, this is addressed to the congregation. And he's telling them, listen, people, 
I want you to keep away from those people that aren't working. Keep away from is a present, middle, infinitive, often used in Koine Greek as an imperative. You yourselves continue to keep away from them. It's used in secular Greek to speak of furling the sails. So you unfurl the sail, you open it up, and then you furl it in, you roll it back. So Paul is saying, pull yourself back, keep yourself back, keep separate from those people that are walking in idleness. It's really strong, people. And he's asking the church, he's telling the members of the church, I want you to separate yourself from these Christians that won't work and depend on others to take care of them. And let me say it again, we really don't know what the issue is of them not working. It doesn't matter. You can't, there's no excuse for it. That's basically, I think, the issue here. It doesn't matter. <coughs> keep away from. So he's commanding the church to keep away from people who won't work. Now, you may be thinking, well, doesn't the Scripture tell us we're supposed to help people who are poor? Does it? It sure does, but it's not talking about people who work who won't work because they can't find work or they're not able to work because of some physical disability or whatever. He's talking about people who refuse to work. All right, And that's a whole other issue, people. We have to understand that. They're disorderly. They're insubordinate. He says you're walking in idleness. This is a toktos in the Greek. This is a military term, which means you're out of line. You're out of order. You're disorderly. It's disorderly conduct. Idleness is the verbal form of the adverb disorderly used in 3, 6, and 11, and the adjective disorderly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And it basically means undisciplined, or to live a disorderly manner and used to describe those who are refusing to work. See, because they're refusing to work, they expect somebody else in the church to take care of them. And he's telling them, God had commanded them to work. It keeps people from being busy, but you see the connection here. You're not working, you don't have a job, guess what? You got a lot of time to meddle in somebody else's business, right? You ain't got your own business, you got to get in their business, all right? God is serious about work. <coughs> it's a means by which man does an honorable task for the glory of God and for the benefit of his fellow man. He says, not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, tradition here is from the Greek word parodosis, and it means that which is handed down or handed over. The term parodosis is used in several senses. This term is used negatively in the New Testament of the teaching of the rabbis, saying they teach as commandments the doctrines of men. Paul doesn't mean tradition as in it's often understood in the modern English in the sense of mere human customs that you can simply accept or reject. And he doesn't use it in the Roman Catholic tradition of you know something that's been passed down from person to person to person and this is a, is a, a writing of men but it's authoritative and that's the problem because a lot of these traditions that the catholic church holds to are, they supersede the authority of the scripture i mean the bible says this but they said well this is handed down through scripture and listen i got into a, a discussion last week with a catholic man and you, you, there's no way to win this okay because you quote scripture and they quote tradition but they have tradition supersede Scripture. So how do you win an argument like that? <coughs> and, you know, the Catholic Church holds the doctrines like transubstantiation that teaches when you take communion, once the priest hocus-pocuses it, it becomes the literal blood and literal flesh 
So this would be cannibalism, okay? You're drinking blood, which the Bible forbids, and you're eating flesh of the Lord. That's what Catholics believe. That's why, if you ever take communion to the Catholic Church, they stick a little tray under your face when you take it, because you, you don't want to drop the body of Christ on the floor, right? So they put that under you, and they give you the thing, and um, that's why. They, they, they believe that. They believe so many things that aren't, aren't in Scripture, but because of tradition. And the Catholic man I was talking to used this verse right here. He says, well, this is tradition, you know, and, and the Bible talks about the tradition that's received. I said, that's received from the apostles, not from some people down the line. See, they believe it's just an unbroken succession, though, all the way down to them today. Well, Paul uses parodicus in our text of the teaching handed down from the apostles that had been handed to them from Christ himself. He says, the tradition you received from us. The only traditions that are valid are the traditions of the Word of God. The traditions of the apostles, the apostolic traditions, the inspired Word of God, that's the only source we have of spiritual truth. And, and people, the danger is when you start going outside this and you have some other inspired writings that are just as, part, as pertinent, you put one against the other, the Bible just loses all power now because, well, yeah, it says this, but we got this over here. It supersedes it. Nothing can supersede Scripture, all right? All right, so Paul's just laying this out to him in verse 6. Listen, church, here's what you need to do. In the name of Christ, I'm commanding you, keep away. Keep away from these people that are not working. Why? So you're trying to encourage them to get working. This is discipline, all right? We want them to wake up, want them to get working. Well, now what Paul does in verses 7 through 10, he gives them his own example. Keep away from these people. Now let me tell you about my example how I work to provide for those in Thessalonica. In verse 7 he says, You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. All right. Imitate is from the Greek word mimeomai, and this is where we get our word mimic from. Imitate. So Paul says, I set the example, I set a pattern, I want you to follow the pattern that I'm laying down. I think this is really important. This is how the apostles spoke. This is how they taught in the New Testament. They told people to follow them, okay? 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I urge you then, brethren, be imitators of me. How many people can say that? I mean, how many people can look at other people and say, look, just, you want to know about Christianity? You don't even have to read your Bible. Just follow me, okay? Do what I do. How many people can say that? Well, how can Paul say that? Well, he can say it because he says, be imitators of me because I'm imitating Christ. All right, I'm following after Christ, who's imitating Yahweh, so just follow me and you'll be okay. Now, the, the Thessalonians were already, in a sense, imitating Paul, and now he tells them to imitate him in his work ethic. That's specifically what he's dealing with here. He's living out this command that he's giving to the believers. He's imitating Christ. Notice what Paul told the Philippian Christians. Well, let me get, not get to that yet. He says, you became imitators of me and of the Lord. So th th they were already doing it, but he's again, here he's telling them, do it in my sense of work ethic. You see me working. You see me laboring. You do that. Look at what he told the Philippians. I think this is a good verse for parents. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. All right, Paul says, look, the things you saw me do, the things you received from me, the things you heard about me, the things you've seen in me, Practice these things. 
You ever heard someone say, do as I say, not as I do? That is not biblical. Okay? It is not biblical. The biblical thing is, hey, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Practice what I'm doing. That's what Paul's saying. I just want you to practice what I do. Imitate me. Follow me. How many of us could say this to other people as far as the Christian life? Listen, just whatever you see me do, you do that. The, the constant call of the Christian is to be like Yahweh. It is Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. Teaching by example of a person's life, that was well known in antiquity. I don't think too many people expect that today. They just they see a contradiction and it doesn't seem to bother them today. I read an article on the way in this morning. My wife was driving, just so you know. <clears throat> about a pastor who's got a big ministry on the internet right now. And they were talking about, you know, he, he divorced his wife, married a secretary. That's okay. They, no, that's all right, you know. You just, he needed a change, whatever. But it's like, the tr- he just goes on. And people don't seem to care. It's not about lifestyle anymore. It's just, well, we like this guy, so we'll just, you know. Christians really need to wake up, you know. You're follow- those in that church are following an adulterer, okay? But teaching by a person's example, that was well known in antiquity. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. In other words, we set the pattern to follow. This is the heart of the leadership. He's saying, just follow the pattern we set. Follow the model, the example. That's what leadership is supposed to be about. Teaching and then living it out. You follow me. In 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we toil and labor, work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. He says, we didn't eat anybody's bread. Okay, this is a, It's a Hebrew idiom. Paul, like all rabbis, they worked for their daily needs. That was just how they did things. He says, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day. Toil here is the Greek word kapos, which refers to laborious toil, trouble, difficulty. Labor is makthos, which according to Strong's concordance is toil. That is by implication, sadness, painfulness, travail. It refers to the kind of labor that is genuine hardship. Now these are strong synonymous terms which are often combined together and they simply speak of hard exhausting labor. Paul said, listen, I was with you, I worked. I worked hard to make my ends meet. You know, as we've said often, Greek society designated labor as only for slaves. But Paul, being a Jew, respected manual labor and continually encouraged it. He said, night and day now, it's an idiom, people. It doesn't mean he worked 24 hours a day, okay? It's, he's just basically saying it was full time. He's referring to the fact that he worked hard. Acts 18 tells us he made tents so that he didn't have to take support from the Thessalonians because he's planning the church there and he didn't want to have to do that. He said it was not because we did not have the right, but to give, you, to give ourselves an example to imitate. Catch what he's saying here, people. It was not because we didn't have the right. The right to what? <coughs> right. The truth is, he had the right to be supported by the people he was ministering to. As an apostle, as a preacher, he was entitled to support. Now, 
excuse me for a minute, I feel a little self-serving talking about this, but it's, you know, it's in the text, and we're just going to deal with it, okay? I'm okay. I'm not asking, I'm not begging for stuff, I'm not asking for things. But Paul was affirming the concept, listen, that believers should support their teachers. That's what he's saying here, all right? That's the issue he is trying to get across. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who does that? Nobody. Why? You've got to get paid if you're out there on the battlefield, right? The government, somebody's got to take care of you. You're a mercenary, someone's taking care of you. Who plants a vineyard without eating its fruit? Nobody does that. If you plant something, you want to eat some of it, right? Who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? Again, no one does. Or if you're doing that, you expect to be paid from that, okay? Now watch what Paul says here. Did I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I just making this stuff up? He says, doesn't the law say the same thing? This is what the law of God says, people. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. That's interesting, isn't it? This is a proverbial way of saying, feed the one who serves you. God isn't really just concerned about auction, oxen, is he? And look what he says there. Is it for auction that God's concerned? Well, he gave that to Moses. It sounds like it's for oxen, but he's saying, no, that's not really the issue here. He wants us to learn from this. He's concerned about men. When someone serves, their needs need to be met, is what he's saying. If we have sown spiritual things among you, he's talking about his teaching, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Is it wrong if we get paid from you because we're teaching you? In other words, Bible teachers should get paid from those they teach. Okay? If you're being taught the Word of God, you should support the teacher. If you're not being taught the Word of God, you should go somewhere where you're being taught the Word of God. Okay? People are sitting in churches and they're like, if they're, if, what's the point? You're not getting credit from God. You're not getting ticked off the box because you made it to church. All right? You're there to learn. You're there to grow. That's the issue. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get paid food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is a standard. Paul set aside this right to provide an example to those new believers and to squelch the accusations that he's preaching the gospel to just kind of milk the people of their money. No, he was doing this because he had a burden and a heart for it. And he's just saying, listen, I have a right to get paid. I'm not doing it. And he talks about in a lot of other places about the right to be paid. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells the churches to support the elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. By honor, he's talking about remuneration there. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This would save a lot of people money today because if you're given to those who preach and teach, you know, you're... <laughs> For the scripture says, again, the ox, you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. You get the picture there? The ox is tied to this yoke and he's walking around in a circle, trampling down the grain. Don't put a muzzle on him so he can't feed himself while he's doing this. All right? He says, the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, John also encourages churches to support missionaries and evangelists in 3 John 5. There's nothing wrong with a Christian worker receiving support. In fact, someone who's teaching you the Word of God should be supported by you. That's what the text is saying. He says, let the one who has taught the Word 
share all good things with the one he teaches. So you're being taught the word of God, you're sharing with the one who does that so they can keep doing it. But for Paul, there were times in the ministry when he refused to receive anything gratis. He insisted on working. And it wasn't that he didn't deserve it. It wasn't that he didn't have that right. He says in verse 9, he did have the right. He's trying, he's trying to show them, listen, I'm setting an example for you of labor, for work. He didn't want anyone saying, well, Paul, look, he's just preaching because he doesn't want to work. He's trying to get out. Well, he's got to be paid somehow. He's got to be taken care of. So in order to prevent the criticism in the Thessalonian church, he, when he was there, he worked. Now, of course, you know, when he started the church, there wasn't anybody there to support him because there wasn't a church there yet, but he got a church going. They could have started supporting him once that happened. <clears throat> but, you know, what's interesting, when Paul was there in Thessalonica, there was a church that was sending him money helping him. Anybody know who it was? Thank you. It was the Philippians. Philippians basically a thank you letter. Paul's writing thanking them for their generosity. Paul says, but even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. So while he's there, the, the Philippians are saying, hey, we've got to get some money down there and help Paul out, help this guy out. According to Acts 18, he also made tents. He was a leather worker. So he worked with hides. He did his own labor, and he got some money in from people outside, but there was no one there who could give him any hard time about not working. So he says, look at the example that I gave you. I'm here, I'm working. I wouldn't want to be confused about it. I don't want it to be a big issue. So I just set you the example, and you follow that. And in verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone was not willing to work, let him not eat. He says, even when we were with you, we gave you this command. When was he with them? Well, that's when he initially got there to start the church. So again, he's telling them this. He deals with this issue right away. This is an imperfect, active indicative, which in the context means that Paul had told him over and over when he's with them. This is not new information. This is the third time he's telling them this. People, when I was with you, I told you, I gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is a present active indicative followed by a present active imperative. People, this right here, this is the point of the whole chapter, okay? This is it. You can skip everything else, just zero in on this. This is the point. If you don't work, you don't eat. This is an axiom. All right? This is a divine, authoritative, revealed truth. So let me ask you this, believers. What is God's cure for laziness? Hunger. Does that make sense? If you're not working, you're going to start getting hungry. Hey, I really liked something to eat here. Well, you know how to get it? Get up and get to work. That's how you get it. So, Paul taught this when he's there with them. He taught it in the first letter he sent back, and now he's teaching them this again. Now, the Didache, are you all familiar with the Didache? It's a second century book of church order. Didache says this, If a traveler comes, the church may help him for a few days. I was okay, he's there for a couple to help him out, all right. If he wishes to settle among you and has a craft, let him work for his bread. The church should reject anyone who is unwilling to work. So you see the Didache picked this up too. This, what I found interesting, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if no one works, let him not eat. That was quoted by Captain John Smith in the early years at the settlement in Jamestown, Virginia. 
His order was this, he that will not work shall not eat. And uh, John Smith was instrumental in the survival of the Jamestown colony. He insisted that all colonists work on producing food if they were to eat. He implemented a policy that required every colonist to contribute to growing crops. What a, what a crazy idea. Where would people come up with this stuff? You want to eat, you got to work. It goes all the way back to the Bible and you can carry it on through. Just as recently as March of 2017, Representative Jody Arrington, Republican from Texas, cited 2 Thessalonians 3.10 to justify changes to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's SNAP. That's the card they give you. They don't give you food stamps anymore. They give you a card now. Supplemental Nutrition Program. So he says, we, he quoted this verse and he said, hey look, we need, if they don't work, they don't eat. He was trying to change the requirements required on that, you know, to get that card and of course you know he was not successful at all, but now here's what's really sad today, people, as we think about this verse. God's cure for laziness is being short-circuited by our government. Our government, which gives away our money to those people who refuse to work. So, guess we, you, me, and I, yeah, me and I, yeah, me and I and the other people, <laughs> We are forced, we are being forced to feed the lazy. Think about this. We're being forced by our government to violate this command of God. It's a command of God. And our government forces us to violate it. How do we, how do we deal with that? Yeah, don't pay your taxes. And then you can go to jail. I'm all for that. If you're, you know, if you're willing, if you're willing to go to jail, you know. <laughs> but if there was a way around it, yeah, I would, I would totally agree. Because I mean, you know, what they do with our money is just so sickening that it just, and they keep demanding more and more. Hopefully, it, hopefully this ends soon, okay? But I just was thinking about this. If you don't work, you don't eat. No, I know a lot of people that don't work, and they eat plenty. You know, because they have the SNAP card, and you just go and you know. Every month the government puts money on it for you, and so you got a little credit card and you run to the store and you buy whatever you want. And you know, they're not allowed to buy, I guess, prepared foods, but you can buy steak. You can get all steak if you want. You know, I'll just get 20 pounds of filet here while I'm at this, you know, I'm on my snap card. And, and it's so out of control now, people, that this, this verse is totally being violated. But God's word makes it real clear. If someone won't work, Get him hungry. Once he gets hungry, he's going to want to start doing something so he can eat again. In fact, the Apostle Paul said if anybody doesn't provide, not only for himself, but for his family, and specifically if the man doesn't provide for his family, he says he's worse than an unbeliever. Because unbelievers even do that. They provide for their family. Look at Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and it's worse than an unbeliever. So he's saying, Christian men, if you're not providing, you deny the faith, and you're worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong, people. That's pretty strong. Denying the faith, being worse than an unbeliever. Well, you say, well, why man? Because it says he. He has denied the faith, because that was the man's role. What about the woman? What's her job? Well, let me step on dangerous ground here, okay. The biblical pattern is that men should support the families financially, 
while the women are to be workers at home. Paul told the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So older women, that's your job. Teach the younger women. Teach them these things. To work at home. Now, I know this is radically countercultural. Listen, if you're countercultural today, you, it's a good thing, man. Our culture is so messed up, okay? But our culture wants to put women down so badly that, you know, if you don't have a job, some kind of career or something, well, women can't do anything anymore because men are taking over everything. You know, the woman of the year was a man. You know, all these people, the swimmer, all these things, they're men pretending they're women. Our culture is so messed up, they don't even know the difference anymore. But this is the Bible, okay? Women are to work at home. They're to help contribute to the family's income if they want to. Proverbs 31 says they can do something. But when there's young children in the home, her work should be not, to, wouldn't, not anything that would hinder her from raising those children in the Lord. Somehow we've gotten away from the fact that mothers are supposed to raise children. You know, Paul says in Timothy that a woman will be saved in child rearing. It doesn't mean she's going to go to heaven and she raises a child. It'll be deliverance from the fact of, I don't have a position in this world. I don't have any meaning. I don't have any purpose. What's the, great, the greatest meaning in the world is raising those children for the Lord. That's what she's called to do. I know it doesn't fit our society, but it does fit what the Scripture says. Working at home, and he says this, that the Word of God may not be reviled. People, when you live contrary to these things, you cause the Word of God to be reviled. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So, what we have to understand, these people he's dealing with, they didn't have a problem with ignorance. They knew this. He told them over and over. He told them when he was there. He told them with the first letter. He told them with the second letter. Listen, they don't have a problem with ignorance. They have a problem with disobedience. All right? This command addresses a lifestyle of inactivity, not temporary unemployment. We need to balance this with Paul's other letters and the care for the poor. For example, in Romans 15, 26, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor saint, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So they were taking up offerings. They were helping to support the poor because they were under persecution. They were having a tough time. He says, if anyone's not work, let him not eat. So this command can be understood as not feeding those who refuse to work. That's the issue here, people. We have to make that straight, okay? If they're refusing to work, they're, getting, they're becoming busybodies, that, you don't need to take care of them. That's not the issue, all right? He says in verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. We hear is a present active indicative. It means... We keep on hearing this. We keep on hearing they're not busy at work, but busy bodies. Busy here is ergazomai, and busy body is perergazomai, and it's a play in the Greek on the words, can be translated this way. They're not busy, but they're busy bodies. Okay, they're not busy doing their work, they're busy getting involved in everybody else's work and you know stirring things up. So that's the issue there. All right. The, you walk in idleness, he says. That means to be undisciplined, to live in a disorderly manner. And it's used to describe those who are refusing to work. In verse 12 he says, Now such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Yeshua the Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. 
we command. Again, he's telling you, I command you, but this time he adds the word encourage. Paralecheo, from where we get paraclete, the comforter. So he's commanding and he's comforting. It's a command with some compassion in it. We command you and exhort you in the Lord, the Christ. Now, that is, those who are in Christ, the family of God, that's who we're commanding. That's who we're telling to do this. Earn their own living. Support yourself, he's saying. Get out there, do a job that brings in the money you need to live on. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing. Now, what we have to catch here, this is a shift. He says, and you, who's the you? This is the people who are working, okay? This is the people who are working, who are helping support the bums that aren't working, okay? (coughs) Excuse me, that's the issue here. Those of you who are helping these other people that aren't working, and for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Because here's the problem. The potential is, all right, we got these people, they quit working for whatever reason. They're deadbeats. They're coming in. We don't have something to eat. We can't pay our rent, whatever. So the church is taking care of them. They're going through this process. And then, you know, they're getting sick of it. They're getting sick of taking care of these people. Uh, Hopefully you would get sick of it, right? Well, then someone comes along with a genuine need, and now you're kind of callous to it because I'm like, ah, I'm sick of taking care of people. They're taking care of these people who should be taking care of themselves. And he says, don't let your weariness, all right? Don't grow weary in doing well because we have to always be willing to do good. It means here, good here means what is perceived by others to be noble. Uh, Moulton and Milligan in the lexicon say what, per- what is perceived to be noble. So Paul brings these two ideas together in uh, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Or in verse 9, he basically makes the same appeal. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Because that can happen, people. He says, for in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So especially for believers. You see a believer in need, a genuine need, then you're supposed to help them out. In Acts 20, Paul says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard, In this we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Yeshua, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we have to help the weak. We have to help those that are poor. In the letter to the Galatians, in verse 2, verse 10, He says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Who asked Him? Well, the church in Jerusalem. The leaders there asked Him, "Don't, don't forget about the poor. Now, and we have to keep that in mind, you know, in dealing with a text like this where he's saying, listen, you got to get these lazy people, you got to get them working, you got to shun them, you got to come against them so they will realize what they're doing is wrong and get to work. But we never have to lose fact that there are people out there who genuinely have needs. Now, let me say this I think it's hard to find them. Genuine needs, okay? I worked for a very large Baptist church in the area, I was in charge of benevolence. Okay, we didn't give away much money, okay? But, and my policy then and policy now is still the same. Someone comes in here for money, we usually help them, okay? And then later go in and try to investigate, is this a genuine thing? And find out, is this... And I'll tell you what, I can't remember a legitimate claim. I really can't. I mean, I've had people come to me, I've got cancer, I'm dying. And so we help them out and find out, well, they don't have cancer at all. They just went to that church last week and this week they're at this church, you know? Got in an actual physical fight with the guy because he came asking for money. 
you know, and I told him we'll take him to the mission because we pay the mission, we help them, we support them, and he can go down there. And he said he needed a private room. And I laughed. And he got so out of, he, he got bent out of shape. He said, I thought you Christians were supposed to be loving and giving. And I said, we are, but we're not suckers. And then he just went ballistic and charged into the auditorium, cussing and screaming. And we had to go in and tackle him and call the police. And the police came and took him away. He, he wrote me an apology letter a couple months later from jail. But it was just, you know, it was totally out of control. And it's, it's just hard to find people in our society that are in a situation where they actually have help. I mean, actually need help because they haven't, you know. We had a woman show up at our door a couple weeks ago. You know, comes, I'm homeless, I'm sleeping in my car, can you help me? Whoa. So yeah, we put her up in a motel, went, you know, tried to figure out all the ins and outs of what was wrong, helped her with a lot of different things. But, you know, you look into it and find out, oh, she's got plenty of money, she's just totally blowing it every week. Blowing it every week. I learned something. Do you know you can gamble at 7-Eleven? 7-Eleven has little gambling machines in it. How ignorant am I? I don't, you know, I go there for gas. That's it. Get gas and keep going, you know. Don't go inside and throw my money away. But, you know, so, I mean, I really do believe, though, if we're going to help someone, it's okay to err on the side of love. You know, make a mistake, help them out, and then investigate it. Because sometimes things are, you know, you have to do it right then. You know, you don't have time to, you know, figure out all this stuff and, and why they need it and when they need it. So you help them out, and then you investigate it, and if there's something really there, they need help. I mean, you got single parents today who are doing everything. You just can't make ends meet, okay, even though you're working hard. They need to have help. There's people who have physical disabilities. They, they can't work, you know, so somebody's got to help out. And it should be the church, not the government, okay? Because you know what? The government doesn't have any money. You know why? Because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't work. It just steals it, whatever they need from us, okay? And then they can do whatever they want to with it. So... So yeah, we, we have to, always have to be sensitive to those people who are needy and be willing to help them out. Don't grow weary in well-doing, he says. That's very important because there always will be people who have needs. In verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. This is literally tag them or mark them. Mark that person. All right, this is, this is a metaphor, okay? Mark that person and have nothing to do with them. Listen, we're telling, this is the third time I'm telling them. If they're not listening, mark them out, stay away from them. In verse 6, he says, draw back from the person. Now he's saying, stay away from them. Same thing. He said it in the beginning. He's saying it in the end of this, this paragraph here. Don't have anything to do with them. All right, why? That they may be ashamed. Well, let me tell you something. That doesn't work in our culture. It's just sad, but it, we don't have a you know shame honor culture like that where the Middle East you know more it's based on that. If people would think they're going to be shamed for something, that's a motivation. I don't want to do that. I mean, if you think people have any honor or shame today, just go to Walmart. Okay, you'll see. You know, <laughs> they don't have any shame anymore. You know, but it's sad. But in our world, in our culture, that's just it's not very strong at all. The ostracized person now, you know, you mark this person out. This person needs to go to work. They're not working. You mark them out. You stay away from them. What do they do? They go down the block to the next church, okay? And the next church goes, oh, you know, we'll help you. And then they get sick of it, and he goes to the, a lot of churches around here. You could, you know, you could, there's people who make a living doing this, people. They really do. Believe me, I've met a bunch of them, okay? 
He says, do not regard him as an enemy. Now again, this is, this is important. He doesn't want the hostility expressed towards these people. Don't regard him as, as an enemy means don't treat them as one who doesn't know Christ, as someone who is opposed to Christ. He's not the enemy, but he says this, warn him as a brother. So mark him out, stay away from him, but warn him. You've got to get a job. You've got to take care of yourself. It's not our job to keep feeding you and taking care of you. Warn is the Greek word nuthateo, and it means to strongly encourage, to correct, to warn someone, to change your behavior that is wrong or potentially wrong according to the Scripture. Nuthateo is a present imperative and can be translated, keep on warning them. Keep warning them until they get a job. So the aim of this church discipline is repentance by restoration. It's not that you just want to get rid of them. You want to warn them. You want them to turn from whatever is causing them not to work to get a job and get involved. Jay Adams has a book on biblical counseling called Competent to Counsel, and it's based on this Greek word, nuthateo. Paul uses this word in Romans 15, 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves, you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're able to nuthateo. You're able to instruct. You're able to counsel. You're able to admonish one another. Listen, all believers are responsible to admonish those who are leading an undisciplined life. If you know them, you know the situation, you're responsible to come alongside to warn them. This is not the way to do it. You've got to get a job. But if we quit supporting them and helping them, hopefully they'll have to get a job because, again, hunger will do that to people. Well, Brians, hopefully you can see the idea of work is important to God. It's not a secular duty. It's a sacred thing. And we're doing it. We're doing it for the Lord. We have to do everything we do as for Him. It's a sacred duty. Our job, whatever it is, is our ministry. And when we deal with these people who refuse to work, we can't just go along and keep feeding them. Now, I don't know what, what we can do when our government's doing that, but other than go alongside and admonish them and encourage them to try to take care of themselves. Um, it's difficult in our culture, it really is. Because I said the government's way oversteps its boundaries. And, but this is the church's job, to take care of these things. So I would just, if you see someone, you know someone that they're just violating this in the sense of they refuse to work, and I think maybe Paul didn't really get into the details of why they refuse to work, because that doesn't matter. The fact they're not working is important. It's not, again, it's not because they're injured. It's not because they can't find a job. It's that they refuse to work. So hopefully a little uh, encouragement in the area of work and helping those who refuse to. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, for all you've provided, Lord. I thank you for the clarity of Scripture and Things like this, they just seem so clear, Lord. If someone refuses to work, they don't get to eat. That would definitely change their mind in a hurry, but it's short-circuited in our culture. Give us wisdom, Lord, on how to deal with these issues that have, that have made it impossible for us when our government comes along and literally takes our money from us so they can feed people who refuse to work. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Questions? Comments? Gary? Well, I like to eat, but I don't want to work. <laughs> <laughs> then you don't eat. Then you don't. That's the problem. You know, that's the problem. Everybody's in that situation, you know? <clears throat> they, people, like, people like eating, and that's why he brings it out like that, you, you know? Good, good motivator.
Well, okay, you're in a position where you are what's called retired, okay? So you have a retirement, so you're not mooching off other people. You're providing for your own needs, you know, and I guess, you know, you get to a point in life where you can sit back and kind of take it easy for a little bit, you know, at least in our culture. That's what they say. Well, I work all the time, and I'm still hungry all the time. Well, <laughs> that's because your diet is wrong. Okay, go to an all beef diet, and you'll find that hunger will go away. Okay. I uh, a friend of mine called me the other day because he was at the butcher's, and I said, when you go to the butcher, ask them to put in your hamburger, put a little bit of heart and a little bit of liver. You know, mix it in with the hamburger. It gives you more nutrition to the hamburger. So he he got it from the butcher, and he said, when I was there, the butcher's wife came out, and she goes. You talk to me about the carnivore diet. She goes, I've been on it. I said, I've lost 40 pounds so far in the last six weeks. And she was just all excited about, you know, she runs a butcher shop, you know. He got all this meat here. So she went on that and lost a bunch of weight. So that was, mm. that was encouraging. But, yeah, you just stop eating so many carbs, Garrett. Just malnutrition myself. <laughs> Does some, a question uh, from Maggie. Does 2 Thessalonians 6b... Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Does that mean just idleness, or does it also mean brothers who are in sin? Well, in this case, they are in sin because of the idols. But in this context, she is dealing with those who are idle. All right, that is the sin because they're commanded to not be idle, but they're still being idle. So, and again, it, you know, it's a difficult situation. But if you know those people who just refuse to work. And again, today in our society, you don't need to work because the government pays you money. I don't know how, how it works out, but I've talked to so many restaurant owners that say we can't hire people. We can't get them. They won't work. I'm like, what are, how are they living? What is the secret that you cannot have a job and do okay? But that's the biggest complaint I hear from employers. We can't hire people. I thought, I didn't know the government was still handing out money. I mean... I guess COVID money, but I know they're handing out money, but <laughs> snap and the snap cards or whatever. But so that that's a you know kind of a tricky situation. I just I don't get it. Norm says I believe this is the reason number one of God's purpose for man. No matter what the excuses, eschatology, owning slaves, or just plain laziness, Yahweh commands that we work. He doesn't say, and on the seventh day Yahweh retired. <laughs> I'm retired technically, yet I still have plenty of work to do. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, I don't know anybody gets to the point where I don't have to do anything anymore. You just sit around and do. And first of all, how boring would that be? <laughs> I mean, really, it just sounds like he says, "I don't care if it's just taking care of the property." He's in, he's entrusted me with 33 years on the road, three heart attacks, eight stents, put out the pasture, yet still working. <laughs> Yeah, Norm, I hear you, brother. There's always stuff to do. You know, I don't, you know what I do on my day off? I do chores. I do work around the house. It's all, you know, yesterday my wife goes, I, I hate to tell you this because I was sitting down. The washing machine's leaking. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so much for a break for today, you know. There's always, I mean, if you have a house, you got to, you know, you got to do stuff there. You got to take care of it. And even if you don't have a house, you still got stuff you have to take care of. So it's not like we ever get to a point where we just sit around and do nothing contemplate our navel or whatever, I guess. But, and again, that to me would be 
That would be hell for me to just do nothing, just be bored. You know, I'd rather be working. Jack, I wonder if you could generalize uh, this uh, uh, advice to um, uh, more of a spiritual or emotional kind of thing, because there's people out there that uh, deliberately know that they make themselves hard to get along with, and they may be likened to the people who refuse to work. Uh, and then there's others who unknowingly are difficult to get along with, and they might be more likely to be uh, compared to the disabled. And I would think that some of the same qualities that would uh, cause you to regard you know, people's uh, work habits, um, uh, it might also cause you to regard um, people's uh, personal habits and how they relate to other people. Were you talking about personalities? Yeah, personality. I mean, some people, you know, let me tell you a little secret. People are different, okay? Yeah. People are different. You know what we all pretty much expect? Expect them to be like us. Mm-hmm. And when they're not like us, we judge them for the areas they're not like us. Mm-hmm. But thank God people are different, okay? <laughs> and learn to appreciate people's difference instead of, but yeah, some people are just annoying. Try not to hang around with them too much, you know, because that's, I mean, that's, you know, have some good sense, don't be around. Now you got family members you get kind of stuck with maybe, but um, <laughs> yes. Anthony. Well, a lot of you know, a lot of times I, you know, experiences for myself too. Sometimes you know, we can complain about what we don't have, but we don't show gratitude of what we do have. We we concentrate on that a little bit more. I think we can better ourselves that way too, in a sense. You know. Well, absolutely. You know, we and I expect with the culture right now, with all the prices going up and going through the roof. I get shocked sometimes when I buy, I'm like, what? How in the world did that price get to, you know, it's like, you know, you've seen the little meme where the most expensive vehicle now is a grocery cart? <laughs> because it's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much, and I don't know how some people do it. And I think that's an area where, yeah, the church should help out if they can, because some people just, they're working. And they just can't, you know, because of the way things are going, they just can't make ends meet. They can't, they can't make it. And it's, uh, it's really sad. I, I don't really think it can keep going on too long like this. I mean, how does a young person now buy a house? You know? I mean, houses, first of all, they're through the roof. Car. <laughs> and then the, the interest rate is, you know, over 7% now. Eight almost. Really? It's just... Yeah, I, I heard something last week about the difference between, you know, a couple percentage points, a thousand bucks a month, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge difference. Stan? Um, take you back to the 70s, okay, before Carter, you know, uh, added all these departments. I think it was called Health, Education, and Welfare, if I'm not mistaken. And my dad, well, they had what they called third-degree asthma. My dad was a miter, then they changed it to black lung. And the state, if I understand correctly, controlled welfare, okay? So we were on welfare, my dad couldn't work. You know, he got a big check from the government, federal government, and the state took everything. I think it was a, they gave him 13 cents back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's out of control, you know, because, you know, first of all, the government's bloated. There's way too many people working in it, okay? And they're making way too much money. Mm-hmm. And why do they need our money anyway? Because they make more money from bribing other people or doing whatever they're doing that's crooked. So. I know, I'm going to get in trouble, i got to watch it. <laughs> Dean from California says, don't feed the animals, it's posted in a state park for a reason. 
Yeah, and uh, that's posted now by the Lord on anybody that, that doesn't want to work. So it says, I retired and highly recommend it. Well, yeah, and that's fine if you can afford it, you know, but if you can't afford to retire, then retirement's not so joyous because what do you do? Sit around wishing I had something to eat, <laughs> you know, wishing I could do something, wishing I could go somewhere, wishing anything, you know, but so you have to have money to retire. Um, anybody else? We done?